those of you who are not familiar with where we are in the scriptures, we're doing a series in the book of Nehemiah and we happen to be up to chapter 5 uh, this morning which is my joy to, uh, to uh, be God's instrument as we uh, explore what he's saying to us this morning. Before we do that let's just continue to pray together. Father we are thanking you again and again. We uh, want to bless you for your presence with us here this morning and and as we continue in this time of worship and celebration, we pray that you will open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to your word. And I know that's a prayer that's been prayed often and we continue to pray that prayer. Let us not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. Let there be a transformation. Let your revelation turn into transformation in our hearts, Lord, so that others may see the difference that Jesus makes. And thus let your church be a powerful witness in this place and wherever you send your people and we pray this in Jesus name amen amen <clears throat> well as part of the uh, I'm going to tell another ambulance story I've got ambulance in my head uh, I spent 17 years and I suppose it's sort of damaged me a fair bit hasn't it over those 17 years but part of the role that we had part of the training role that we had in the QIS uh, was that our training department that I was involved with was required to deliver the ambulance first aid component of what we call a HASCHEM course. We ran those, uh, the emergency services used to run those a couple of times during the year, HASCHEM as in hazardous chemicals. So we were involved with police, with the fire service, with SES, and ambulance was involved as well. And we had to do the first aid part of that particular course. And as I said, they would run these things few, uh, during the week, uh, during the, the year, a number of these courses during the year. Um, and the fireys used to love it. We used to love working with the fire service because they used to love all their equipment. They'd, they'd bring all their equipment out and show us, you know, we'd show them the latest band-aid that we've got where they'd bring out the jaws of life, you know, and show us all these things. And, and one of the things they would have during these HASCHEM courses, they'd show us the levels of protective clothing that they would wear. And they had blue suits, they had yellow suits. These yellow suits were a completely encapsulated suit. Um, and uh, they would get us to put these things on. And some of us couldn't put it on because it was so claustrophobic in there. You were completely, it was a gas-proof suit. And there were others that were splash-proof and against. And it was all about chemicals. It was all about gases and chemicals and things like that. Because, you see, one of the sessions that we, we had to do... Uh, was to simply speak about the fact <clears throat> that uh, that there were <clears throat> pardon me that there were chemicals and gases that reacted externally and dangerously to exposed skin you know and how those chemicals those same gases and chemicals as you could imagine that if you inhaled them or ingested them they would do you a lot of harm internally so something that was external could also be problematic for you internally if you inhaled them or ingested them into the body. So we would say things such as this in the lecture, we'd say things, if you found yourself exposed in a situation to anything and you started to find that your eyes were starting to sting and they were starting to water and you found that your nose was starting to sting and you found that there was a lot of mucus in your mouth and you were starting to cough and you were starting to go, I'm going to be a little bit sort of dramatic here but I won't demonstrate the whole thing. We would say, do not swallow what you're doing. You don't swallow that. You would spit it out. Don't do that at home, kids. You get a clip under your ear from your mum and dad. But we would say that to the emergency services. Why? It makes sense when you think about it. If you're breathing something in that's toxic 
and you do that and swallow it, well, what's, guess, guess what happens to the gut? It ends up in there. And there are people who have got problems now because that's what they've done, inadvertently swallowed toxic stuff. We don't swallow it. We spit it out. <clears throat> the reason is that you don't want those things that are, that, that are external to you becoming internal problematic to your body which would lead to perhaps even more serious sickness so simply this we know that there are some nasties out there there's some nasty toxic chemicals around that will harm us externally and if given access will harm us internally and make us sick that's the point that's what we want to get across and you know what the interesting thing is when you start looking through Nehemiah because you probably wonder where on earth is this bloke going with this stuff well, there's a similar thing that's happening here in the book of Nehemiah. See, in the book of Nehemiah, we found that Nehemiah finds himself exposed to problems like this. For example, last week in chapter 4, we see an external situation that was threatening to harm the body of people that were there working to rebuild the wall. It was an external attack. Something was happening externally to those people that was causing a threat to them. And they were dealing with that. But now in chapter 5, guess what we see happening? We see something happening internally. We now see an internal situation starting to threat, th threatening to harm the people and the work that they were appointed to do. So something that happened externally is now happening, happening internally. And it's interesting, perhaps even significant, that there is you know in this chapter that there is no record of any actual rebuilding being done in this chapter doesn't that get you thinking I want you to think about that why is that something's happening now internally to that body of people and there's no actual record of actual physical work being done on the wall it's kind of stopped they're now preoccupied with something else that's going on there I wonder if that says anything about what internal harm actually does to the body what it does to us I want you just to sort of keep that in mind as we go through this you see up until this point in time the main concern for Nehemiah was this external opposition the external threat that was going on the external opposition from from Sanballat and his cohorts that was the main threat but now he's confronted with something more serious, it would seem, a serious internal conflict, which I think, it seems to me anyway, that Nehemiah was not expecting this to happen. You see, up until now, we have this picture. Up until, verse, uh, up until chapter 4, we have this picture of a highly motivated and dedicated body of people that God's brought together to rebuild his city. And sure, their morale had taken a hit, but they were back into it again. They were back into it. Um, they, they, they needed to arm, we know that, but they needed to arm themselves as they worked. But they were back on the job. They were back doing it. It was still God's work. They believed in it. They gave, it to, they gave themselves to God's work with all their heart. So how could there now be internal problems among God's people who seem to be working so fantastically, so harmoniously together? They dealt with the external threat, but now something internally is happening, internal. How could that be? They're God's people. They're doing God's work. How could there be disharmony amongst God's people? 
You know, I think sometimes it's good practice. I think sometimes it's wise to ask the question, is the enemy now trying to attack from the inside? Since his outside assaults have not really been successful, have not really thwarted or completely destroyed God's work, is the enemy now changing his tactics and is he, still, is he now trying to hit us from the inside? You can see then why prayer is so crucial. Why prayer is so crucial among God's people and, and that wisdom be sought from God, that we pray for wisdom, we pray for insight. We pray that God will guide and lead and expose to us things that he would have us deal with, um, that, that he would guide us in decisions and that actions be taken when we're faced with circumstances like internal conflict that's going on. You see, in this chapter, Nehemiah really does exercise what I would simply call as godly wisdom. I believe God gives him this godly wisdom and I believe God gives us wisdom. We only have to ask for it. It's in James, isn't it? Ask for that wisdom. And God's given Nehemiah this, God, this wisdom of his in handling the internal dispute that's now starting to reveal itself among his people. So I wonder what we, you and I can learn from this. There's always something that God wants to speak to us about, otherwise he wouldn't have written it in the Bible. It's there for us to learn and to adopt and to be able to make relevant in our own life. So I wonder what we can learn from this. Well, firstly, I think it's good to understand that in this particular time and place, the economic situation for the people of Jerusalem back then was very poor. It was grim. It was very grim. And the thing that made it worse still was the corrupt, unscrupulous nobles and officials who took advantage of these people in these circumstances. Instead of providing gifts for the poor, they made loans available. Loans available. And then they charged the poor with huge interest called usury. So the people got themselves into all kinds of strife. The poor people could not handle that type of uh, interest and those kinds of loans to pay them back. And so they had to, the situation we have here is that people had to mortgage their homes and their fields. And some even had to sell their children. That's getting desperate, isn't it? Some sold their children to slavery to pay for the debts that they'd incurred. It was a miserable situation fueled by the greed and the corruption of their own countrymen. I'm, I'm not an economist. In fact, my wife would say that very clearly. I'm not much of an economist, but you know what? It seems to me that a large percentage of the world's economic hardship is due to plain greed and selfishness. I'm simplistic in my thinking, but I reckon that that's where our problems are. Most of it, I believe, is to do with greed and selfishness. And sadly, even in our own country, even in our own country, where there's a continual rise of interest rates, where there's the cost of just the cost of living, cost of food, cost of fuel. And my opinion is that greed is driving it up. What about some of the CEOs that we have and the incredible wages that these people are paid? I might get into trouble for saying that, but that's my opinion. 
I think it's greed. A lot of it, I think, is plain greed. I think it's completely unjustifiable. The millions and millions of dollars that a person is paid to do a job. Come on. Anyway, don't let me get started with that. You know, there was a saying, you probably heard it, um, around uh, live simply that others may simply live. I wonder how we're doing with that. I don't think we're doing that very much, very well at all. And you know, I've got to say this, money is not the problem, really. Money's not, having money is not the problem. It's the love of it. The love of money is the root of all evil. It's not money itself. God gives Christians money, I believe he does, but he expects you to do the right thing with it. He expects you to put him first. God needs to be first in everything. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the other things will be given unto you. We, we have that priority there very clearly. But listen to what God's word says about greed. I just want to touch that for a minute. Listen to what God's word says about greed. Found in Ephesians 5, verses 3 to 5. But among you, he's talking amongst, Paul's talking about his people, to his people. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place. But rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure or greedy person, such a man as an idolater which we already talked about, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Paul, Paul's no punches when it comes to this topic of greed and it's pretty clear to know it's pretty clear to 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 see what god thinks about greed just read his word but does it not also anger us you and me when we hear of companies when we hear of banks and organizations that make millions if not billions of dollars profit and yet still keep squeezing the life out of the little people it does me, and I think it's justified to feel angry like that. It's greed and selfishness. Let's name it and shame it. Let's call it for what it really is. We like to sugarcoat it, and you won't hear people talking about it much who have got the billions and who make the profits and do that. They use all kinds of other technical terms, but I just think it's called greed. Anyway, I'll keep going. You know, I, don't, I just don't think they don't get this. They don't get the fact that one day they're going to stand before God and he's going to look at them and he's going to ask them certain things. I wonder, I wonder how they'll go then and I wonder how we'll go. You know, and that's, Let's get real about this. You and I will also stand, the Bible says, before the judgment seat of Christ. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We need to keep those things in mind as we live in this earth. Read 2 Corinthians 5.10 and also have a read of Psalm, 20, Psalm 73. There's some good things in there, encouraging things, because the psalmist also struggled with the people who seemed to be getting it easy, who had lots of money, had lots of wealth, and so on and so forth. He's, and he was being coming discouraged until God revealed to him the true picture. Psalm 73 is good. But Nehemiah got angry as well. And I, you know, as I said, rightly so. Rightly so. Verse 6, he says this. 
God's word says, verse 6, When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I was very angry. But I also want you to notice this as well. Look at what happens in verse 7, the first part of verse 7. Look at this. So he says this, When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Verse 7, I pondered them in my mind. Isn't that interesting? Here's this guy very angry about things, and then next minute we have, and I pondered them in my mind. I wonder if that's the reaction or response we would give. Something riles you up. You are very angry. Do you ponder things in your mind first? One translation says this about the first part of verse 7. I mastered my feelings. Another one says, I took counsel with myself. You know, this is interesting. And this is so good. This is what we need to be saying. God, help me. Help me to be like this. Help me to, to apply these things in my own life. So in other words, before Nehemiah took any action or before, you know, or before he spoke any words in his anger or took any action in his anger, he paused. I don't know for how long, but he paused. He cooled down. He thought it through prayerfully, I would suggest, even if it be a very short arrow prayer as we talk about. But I believe he did this. And then, it says, and then he accused the nobles and the officials. But the point is this, and I, and I like how Pastor Darrell brought this story a couple of weeks ago, and he used these words. The point is this, Nehemiah responded, he did not react in anger. There's a response, not a reaction. And as I said, Pastor Darrell had a little story about that and how a lady, I think it was, spoke to him and gave him that counsel. Darrell, don't react in anger respond I think it's good good counsel good advice and this shows Nehemiah did the same thing and it shows that Nehemiah therefore is a man he's a man of great godly wisdom leadership and of self-control you and I would do very well if we adopted these practices from Nehemiah before we allowed anger to gain a foothold to get a, to, to get the upper hand in our lives you know, I believe it's so important if we can just get hold of this. You know, when anger begins to grow in you, and you know when it does, when you sense that anger begins to well up in you, and it grows, I want you to remember three Ps. I want you to remember three Ps. It goes like this. Pause, ponder, pray. Pause, ponder, pray. It'll really make your day. Pause, ponder, pray, it'll drive all anger away. You can put music to that if you like. I haven't put anything on that. Remember the three Ps, because I believe that's what Nehemiah did. Pause, ponder, pray. I want you to think about this. What implications would there be in our society if people did this? How would that impact our societies? What would be the population of our prisons? What would be the population of our hospitals? What would be, 
you know, um, of our courts, for example? How much work would the courts have? Would the prisons have? Um, I, I believe that they'd either be greatly reduced with these occupants if we adopted these practices. Prisons, courts, hospitals, empty if people in their anger paused, pondered, prayed before they acted. Listen to Proverbs 29, 22. An angry man stirs up dissension and a hot-tempered one commits many sins. God's word says a lot about anger. An angry man stirs up dissension and a hot-tempered man commits many sins. Proverbs 15, 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. How many of you have tried that? If someone's really in your face and they're red with rage and they're having a go at you, what's the worst thing you could do? Turn it up and try and equal theirs or outdo them. No. That is the worst you can do, yeah. Speak quietly. Speak softly. And you'd be surprised how their level of anxiety might drop. But if you're excited and angry when they are, it's just it doesn't go anywhere. You just throw fuel on the fire. When you do that, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15.1. The Apostle Paul also says a fair bit about anger, and he, and he comes to us with a warning about anger, and he says this. Interesting to note the words that Paul uses. He says, in your anger, do not sin. He's not saying do not be angry because there are certain things that I believe are justifiable to be angry so he's saying this in your anger do not sin because you sure can sin when you get angry so in your anger do not sin do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and look at verse 27 of Ephesians 4 and do not give the devil a foothold because he is there we are vulnerable as people when we are angry. The devil is there and he's waiting for that foothold to get in your life if you give him that opportunity. And God's word is saying, don't give him that opportunity. And in the name of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we pray, pause, ponder, pray, God will help you to not let the enemy use that situation and get a foothold. You know, Nehemiah's anger, as I've already mentioned, Nehemiah's anger could be described as righteous indignation. It's the same kind of anger the Lord Jesus had. Yes, there are times that are justifiable to be angry. In fact, if you're not angry, there's something wrong with you when there are the situations that we have just talked about in this world that are unjust and so on. So the Lord Jesus was also angry. Nehemiah was angry towards a totally unjust and acceptable, unacceptable, sorry, unacceptable situation. But, the, but again, the way he goes about confronting this shows the kind of wisdom, the kind of self-control that Nehemiah had. And there were three other things that he does. I just want to mention these briefly. Three other things which he does and which I believe we too can do which will help to heal an internal situation it will promote internal healing because that's where the issue is it's happening internally so firstly pardon me he names the sin and by so doing it he rebukes it he says in verse 7 you are exacting usury from your own countrymen he names it straight out names the sin and rebukes it so in other words 
In other words, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. In other words, he's saying this, you're ripping off your own people. You're ripping them off. There it is, black and white, straight, clear. No ambiguity about that, you're ripping them off. And it's unacceptable. It's against the Old Testament law. Moses spoke about that, against it, in a number of places in the Old Testament. In passages such as Leviticus and Deuteronomy and in Exodus, Exodus it says this, 22:25. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a money lender, charge him no interest. So what were they doing? They were charging him exorbitant amounts of interest. It was ridiculous. It was wrong. They shouldn't have been doing it. He names it and, and, deals, and deals with it. First thing he does. So he names those things and he rebukes it. The second thing that he does is he calls a public meeting so it could be dealt with openly and honestly, which in turn had two other effects. So firstly, he, secondly, sorry, he calls a public meeting so it could be dealt with openly and honestly. And that does two other things. A, it allowed the hurting people to see the matter was being addressed honestly. And it made the, B, it made the officials realise their need to publicly acknowledge their wrongdoing and put it right in verse 12. They could say a lot of things about that, but I haven't got time. Think about the things where something has happened to somebody we're living in a world now, let me just say this, where there's a lot of abuse. Sexual abuse, I believe, is rampant in more, more, perhaps in more ways than we realise. And there are people who are silently suffering. When that thing is named, and when the perpetrator is named, and it's brought out openly, and I believe healing starts to happen in certain forums. That's just one area. I'll, I'll keep going. But third, the third thing he does, he also emphasises in verse 9 here, the spiritual aspect of their actions. He says, what you are doing is not right. What you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? What kind of a witness or a testimony is, you, is your life projecting? And you know, what great benefits would flow into our lives and into our churches and how much pain and damage would we avoid if God's people took this verse more seriously before speaking and acting? Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? You and I know ever so well how the media love a church or a high-profile religious person, if they can accuse that person of moral, unethical, or any questionable or unquest—sorry, questionable behaviour, the media love that. The media love that, and of course, when they're caught out, when these people are caught out, it's often so very damaging and hurtful to so many. It has that rippling effect, doesn't it? It hurts so many people when someone finds out that someone that they have trusted, and in a church, it happens. It bruises a lot of people. It hurts a lot of people. And you know what? The devil ensures that it does. He ensures that it does. He wants to make the impact powerful. Of course he wants to wreck what God's doing. 
And so he gets in there and he ensures that there is a lot of damage and hurt that happens. But listen to the godly wisdom again that comes through the Apostle Peter in, in regards to these things. He says this in, in his epistle. 1 Peter 2, 15, 17 says this. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men, people. Isn't that interesting? For it is God's will that by you, by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honour the king. Beautiful words, aren't they? And folks, I just pray you soak in these words of God. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to you. Soak in them. Let them become part of you. Marinate yourself with God's word. I want to close with this thought. As I've been reading through this and as I've thought about this whole picture of Nehemiah 5, I want to close with this. You know, we know as a church, we, we know as Christians that, see, that Satan is a defeated foe, correct? He is defeated. And we ought not to fear him. We ought not to tremble in fear about Satan. He is a defeated foe. You need to know that. We need to hang on to that truth. But having said that, we also need to wisely understand that the scripture says words like this. 1 Peter 5.8 Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Yes, we know he's defeated, but we also know that he's full of bluff and he will go out and he will try and use that bluff uh, to get to you and uh, to, to, to God's people he is still our enemy. The Bible says that. So we are to be self-controlled and alert. And you know, to me it seems as if, it's, as, it's almost as if Satan prowls around the churches. The churches, let me say this, particularly the churches that are alive, the churches that are alert, the churches that are growing. I don't believe Satan bothers too much with churches that are asleep or those that are so introspective, those who are so self-absorbed or so self-centred that they're ineffective, he's not going to bother with those. But he will bother with the churches that are alive, that are active, that take the commission that God's given to us seriously. He's interested in those sorts of churches where people have a vision for wanting to reach the lost and the hurting. Those that are in the kingdom of darkness to bring into the kingdom of light through Christ, Satan is interested in churches that have a fair income vision like that. And here is, and so I want you to see this picture. Here's Satan prowling around these churches. And you know, just like an enemy does, an enemy will probe the perimeter to see where the weaknesses are. He will probe where the vulnerabilities of that perimeter are. And he says this. He says, how can I get inside? How can I get inside? I've just been thinking about that. And the, and, the, and the frightening thing, perhaps more than that, is he says, who can I use? How can I get inside? Who can I use? 
Who can I use? How can I get inside to get them to swallow these toxins of mine that'll make them sick, that'll make them turn on each other? That way, the work will stop. My kingdom will not be threatened by that church. How can I get inside, he says. Could it be possible that the enemy could even be saying something like that to Sunnybank District Baptist Church? Could it be possible? The Bible says this, be self-controlled and alert. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Listen to this, resist him. There's our answer. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Remember not so long ago we did a series on the full armour of God? Have you been conscious? Someone reminded me just this week, and I must, remit, I must admit I had forgotten about that, and he said, have you put on the full armour of God? And I went, yeah. We really need to be conscious of these things. We need to put on the full armour of God because we we're no match for the enemy and his devices. We're told to resist him. We're told to stand firm in our faith. Folks, we've got to do that in this church. Let's pray. That'll do. Father, we want to thank you for the cross this morning. We've just, how can we, how can we express our gratitude to you? How can we express our love for you, for all that you've done for us? through the cross we thank you that through the blood of Jesus the enemy is defeated our enemy is defeated Lord we thank you for your word that speaks about that the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night before the father has been cast down and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony we thank you for those kinds of words, those promises. We, we thank you for the promises where you called us to therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he shall flee from you. We thank you for these truths. Lord, I just pray for us as a church this morning that you make us alert to the schemes, to the intentions, to the strategies of the evil one and how he wants to penetrate and get inside of us. And we just pray you help us as a church to be alert to his movements and to pray and to put on the full armour of God and to pray the covering of the blood over each other, over this church fellowship. That we each one, each one of us, Lord, to be alert that we not be an unwitting uh, instrument in the evil one's hands. So we just thank you for your time with us. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the things you teach us. Help us to know how these are to be put into practice in our own lives as your people. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.